This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 16th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Federal surveillance authorities that allow for often suspicionless and certainly warrantless eavesdropping on Americans are set to expire at the end of the year. This time, though, lawmakers are at least considering some reforms before reauthorization. Cato's Patrick Eddington is skeptical. James Chernowski of Americans Prosperity is somewhat less skeptical. We spoke last week. Gentlemen, do you know how I know it's late in the year? It's late in the year because certain surveillance authorities are going to expire soon. And now, rather than having a long, deliberative, deliberative process in the deliberative bodies (laughs) uh, in Congress, we have the beginning, or at least the drumbeat of the mad rush toward reauthorization of these surveillance authorities. James, if you don't mind, there are some lawmakers who have taken issue with some of these surveillance authorities that are largely not authorized by the Constitution, not largely reviewed by Congress for the most part. So tell us what what do these lawmakers want to do? What are the surveillance, surveillance authorities at issue? And what do you think about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so what is at the heart of the expiration here at the end of the year is what's called Section 702 underneath the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. This authority was passed back in 2008 as an extension of the powers that are being carried out underneath the Bush administration. And this is what allows the intelligence community to go and collect Americans, uh, sorry, non-U.S. persons' communications. But given the nature of how communications are collected, and the nature of how data is stored, more often than not, you have Americans' communications getting grabbed up as well. So this presents that constitutional question that many critics of FISA authorities have brought up, where it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And in order to go and tackle this issue, we've had a bipartisan, bicameral uh, group of legislators go and introduce what is called the Government Surveillance Reform Act. And it is seeking to go and institute much-needed reforms to Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. But then it's also trying to tackle the broader surveillance issues that have promulgated throughout the rest of the United States government as well by tackling Executive Order 12333, uh, which is one of the primary functions that creates a lot of this environment that we're living in right now. So that's really what they're trying to do here. They want to go and put in a warrant requirement. They want to go and make the government have some more oversight over how this stuff is being carried out. They want to introduce accountability measures when people who are using these authorities abuse them, which has been very well documented. So there's a lot of really good things in the bill. And what I can note most importantly is it's the only bill right now that's out there that's actually reauthorizing Section 702, which is what the administration certainly wants to see happen. The only difference for them is that they've been trying to push for a clean reauthorization this whole time, and that's just not politically viable. Pat, you've been a critic, of course, of these surveillance authorities and the way intelligence agencies operate more broadly. But you're also a bit of a critic of the criticism of the or the reform efforts of these particular surveillance authorities. So just off the top of my head here, I believe the Biden White House or some representative of the Biden White House called this warrant requirement operationally unworkable. And of course, the correct response to that, at least it seems to me, is that, yes, constitutional rights sadly do impede government efforts at surveillance of Americans. I want to say at the outset that, uh, for, for starters, I'm not surprised at all by the administration's reaction. 
And I should say that it would be the same reaction, I tend to think, if it was a, a, a pre-Trump GOP administration. <laughs> Not exactly sure what would be going on right now uh, if Donald Trump were president of the United States with respect to this particular authority. The second thing that I'll say is that I don't have any doubt whatsoever that the sponsors of this legislation, House and Senate on both sides of the aisle, have the very best of intentions. There's no doubt about it. You know, James has talked about some of the things that this bill would do. What he didn't mention is the entire section on so-called cell site simulators, MZ catchers. These are the things that they, that law enforcement, federal, state, and local use to basically try to sweep up all manner of uh, cell phone traffic. They claim they don't go after content. I'm skeptical on that point as well. And in fact, that, that portion of the bill on cell site simulators, it takes one-fifth of the 206 pages of the bill. So they spent quite a bit of time you know, thinking about that, obviously. But all of this talk about electronic surveillance is really kind of what brings me to my overarching criticism of the approach here. You know, I've, I've been doing this kind of work since I was on the Hill uh, in 2004. So almost 20 years of looking at this stuff and dealing with it. And what I'll say is that the D.C. policy community and generally in the privacy and civil liberties community specifically has really kind of become myopically focused on electronic surveillance. I'm not going to say that it isn't important. Clearly, it is important. But the FBI will still have the ability to go out and open an investigation on you, me, James, or anybody else or any other group without any kind of criminal predicate. This bill does not fix that, right? That is a giant loophole. I also think that if this bill were to become law, which it will not become law in its current form, that, that's absolutely not going to happen. And I, we can talk about, I'll talk in a few minutes about some of the reasons why that's not going to happen. But even if this bill were to become law, I'm convinced that it would drive every single federal law enforcement agency in the direction of recruiting an entire new large generation of human informants <laughs> that they would then use to go out and try to gather as much of this kind of data as possible. And under the attorney general guidelines that basically dictate essentially how the FBI, ATF, DEA, and the like can operate, there's this category called otherwise illegal activity. And so activity that potentially might be covered by this legislation under normal circumstances, under the attorney general guidelines, they might try to use those guidelines essentially as a way to use, you know, a new batch of confidential human sources, another larger batch of those, to try to go out and engage in the kind of activity that they want in order to get the kind of data that they need. Now, that, that's what I worry about, especially in a domestic context. But to get back to my other point about why this bill isn't going to become law, there's a particular section of this bill, I think it's section 210, that explicitly uh, abrogates a court-created doctrine called the state secrets privilege. Now, I want to be clear, that's my favorite part of the bill. Hands down, my favorite part of the bill. And for the benefit of our, our listeners, the state secrets privilege is a perfect example of judicial activism uh, in a pro-national security state context. It's based on a 1953 Supreme Court decision in a case known as Reynolds, in which the Air Force was essentially allowed to lie about what happened with, with a specific B-29 bomber crash that had occurred a few years later. They were claiming that they could not possibly discuss the circumstances around this uh, particular incident because it would basically create a national security nightmare and so on and so forth. 
and without demanding a single document from the executive branch, the Supreme Court bought this nonsense. And we've been living with that ever since. And so what this bill would do as written is with respect to the state secrets privilege, it would take that away as it pertains to this particular piece of legislation. I can guarantee you, I can give you a 100% guarantee that if either version of this bill makes it to the House or Senate floor, the Biden administration's Office of Management and Budget will issue a statement of administration policy stating that the president will veto this legislation if that provision remains in there. You can take it to the bank. That will happen. So for that reason alone, this bill is, I think, kind of DOA. My guess is they'll also object, you know, they already have objected, obviously, to the warrant requirement, even though that works fine, you know, in a typical Article Three, you know, context in criminal trials every day in this country. So we're going to see national security state hawks like Tom Cotton in the Senate and probably another number of folks in the House. They're going to do everything they can, you know, to guarantee that this bill, certainly in its current form, goes absolutely nowhere. We do have some very interesting political dynamics that I think would be kind of fun to talk about if we have some time to do that. But in any event, that's kind of my very quick and dirty on it. But, uh, you know, we're talking about sort of nitty gritty details of the way the government does a lot of its work gathering information. While it is clear that the feds should not target Americans, the lack of meaningful oversight and the ways in which the feds are allowed to gather information leaves massive avenues for the sort of backdoor targeting of Americans for data collection. Can we talk about that a little bit, James? If you don't mind, just detail how some of those avenues work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that when we're looking at why this legislation ultimately became a thing to begin with, it was because of the notion that the government was deploying so many tools at its disposal um, to go and collect the the digital communications of Americans in a variety of contexts. And time after time again, we get, you know, Fisk court opinions going and outlining the various abuses where we've seen FISA getting abused to go and uh, spy on January 6th protesters. We've seen the FISA authorities getting abused to go and spy on Black Lives Matter protesters. Notably, we've also seen this year how FISA authorities have been abused to go and target a sitting United States a member of Congress, as well as a sitting senator, as well as state local affiliates and political donors. And the problem I think that ultimately comes up with all of that is that every single time one of these instances comes up, they say, well, that was underneath a previous regime and we've done internal reforms to go and, and solve that particular issue. So trust us, this won't possibly happen again until it happens again. And that's why we find ourselves in the position where you have a Ron Wyden teaming up with a Mike Lee. Um, these are two members that are on very different sides of the ideological spectrum, if you will. And, you know, I think what they're, they're the reasoning behind it might be different for each of them, but that's why you're seeing the push come across the ideological spectrum. That's why you're seeing civil society groups across the ideological spectrum, including Americans for Prosperity and Demand Progress, the ACLU. You know, there's a lot of organizations that recognize that there's a problem here. And Again, I'll go back to what I said at the outset here. It's not whether or not this is going to be whatever the final thing is. The difference is, is that there's a clock that's attached to December 31st, as Pat kind of uh, alluded to there. And this is the only bill out there right now that reauthorizes FISA. And the administration's posture so far has just been a clean reauthorization, 
no reforms whatsoever, or at best, milk toast uh, codifying any kind of reforms that the FBI has already done internally, which is just not enough right now. And the alternative is a lot worse. That would mean that it's expiring. And as the administration has more than aptly pointed out, national security is very important. And over 70% of the daily briefing that the president gets is driven through 702 data. So they see a value there. So I think that what this does at a minimum is it forces a conversation for both the administration and some of those more, we'll say, intel favorable members of Congress, whether that's a Tom Cotton or whomever. So I think that that's why this is so important. Pat? So the reason this program should die, (laughs) just come right out, out of the gate with that, is that the reality is this program, for the benefit of those who may not know the full history of this, this program was illegal out of the gate when Michael Hayden started it a day after the 9-11 attacks. This is what was known as the so-called President Surveillance Program. Its actual title, as we finally learned through uh, the, the work of the New York Times and other outlets, was Stellar Wind. That was the code name of the program. And literally right after the attacks, when Michael Hayden was the director of the National Security Agency, he ordered his people basically to begin collecting data between the United States and Afghanistan irrespective of whether or not uh, it involved U.S. persons. And that's the basis for, for this program originally. And it was only when the New York Times exposed this program in December 2005 that the administration then was put on the defensive, the Bush administration was put on the defensive, and that began what amounted to about an, an 18-month battle to take this completely unconstitutional program and try to make it constitutional. And this is how we get the FISA Amendments Act in 2008. I was on the Hill for all of this, right? So, I mean, I, I, lived, I lived through this whole thing. And when I worked for Representative Holt of New Jersey, New Jersey's 12th Congressional District at, at the particular time, we did everything we could essentially to derail this because we were absolutely convinced that there was no way to really ever make this kind of a program constitutionally compliant. And what we have seen over the last 15 years is violation after violation after violation. And what we've also seen is the FISA court never sanctioned anybody in the executive branch for those violations. Nobody's gone to jail. Nobody's lost their job, right? And, and that's why they feel a sense of impunity on this. And so, you know, Caleb, you, you said right at the outset, I think very correctly, you know, this is, this is the, the playbook for the, for the executive branch and, and for the permanent bureaucracy is wait until the last minute, then do a Jack Bauer 24 and say, give us this authority or we all die in five minutes, right? And then they try to scare the crap out of members of Congress. And the problem with this bill is that it's 206 pages long, right? So trying to get members of Congress up to speed on a bill that by definition really is kind of technical uh, in a lot of respects, that I can tell you from personal experience, 10 years plus of, of that experience, that's a, that's a tough sell. That, that's a very difficult thing, especially when we may have a government shutdown in about a week of unknown duration. <laughs> In addition to all the other spending bills that have not been passed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a a Republican uh, GOP conference in the House that may, depending upon how things happen, oust yet another speaker, um, you know, providing us, you know, still more chaos. So anytime they tell you they have to have this authority or people are going to die, always be suspect because they said that about Stellar Wind and that was a lie. They said that about the Section 215 Patriot Act, Section 215 Telephone Metadata Program. Said it for years. That was a lie. Those programs went away. Nothing bad has happened. I can pretty much guarantee you that nothing seriously bad will happen 
if this particular authority goes away. They will find ways to get the data that they need. If they have to do it through a presidential finding on an emergency basis, through a covert action, that is a method that they could use potentially. There are other pathways for them to potentially get the data. So nobody should really be in a hurry to deal with this. Um, We need to do what should have been done. As you pointed out, Caleb, much earlier this year, there should have been hearings in March, April, May of this year, you know, to deal with all of this. Didn't happen, but they're going to try to jam it at the last minute. uh, And we'll just, we'll see how it plays out. One other thing I I want to uh, make note of with respect to this entire process of uh, gathering intelligence and items or questions that go before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court is that these agencies have lied to that court on numerous occasions. And Pat, as you mentioned, no one appears to have been held to account for that, whereas if you and I were in a, a, civ- a regular civil or criminal court and people had falsified records yes. or, or otherwise lied to the court, yes, that's very serious. And, and the thing to point out here is that my comments about nobody being held accountable applies to the 702 program. But if you look at what happened in, in the infamous crossfire hurricane investigation that the FBI you know, used to target Trump associate Carter Page, that was under a completely different section of FISA. And even there, when they were targeting someone associated with an active presidential campaign, you had a, an attorney at the FBI, Kevin Kleinsmith, who deliberately falsified, he actually modified a document, an email, that was part of a FISA application package to the court. And the only thing that he got when it was finally discovered and they went after him, they let him off with probation and some community service. So that's just another example you know, of, of the lack of accountability. I think it's not just about 702. I think it's about the program generally. And, and when you, if you go and you look at the uh, Department of Justice IG website, they've been doing follow-up work on the so-called Woods procedures that, that govern the other portion of, of FISA that we've been talking about with respect to the Carter Page fiasco. And early on in that, that particular examination, like three or four months in, they issued a, a, basically an emergency memorandum. Uh, to DOJ and FBI management saying, we've already been out to a couple of dozen FBI offices and we're finding all kinds of problems with FISA applications. So the point that I like to make to people is if, if they are screwing up at the presidential level <laughs> in terms of how this is, is, is being done with respect to, to the use of FISA, think about how much they're, they're getting away with that they shouldn't be on average people like us. It, it's just mind boggling. James? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's obviously notably bad when there's no accountability um, for government actors that are abusing the authorities that are afforded under these kinds of programs. So that is one of the nice things about the legislation um, in the Government Surveillance Reform Act is that it does have an exhaustive uh, portion dealing with um, government a- actors who are going in and abusing this authority and holding them accountable, which can include suspension, termination, things of that nature. So I think that that aspect of the conversation is certainly something that is very important to highlight because the problem, as I've often talked about with these, uh, with the FISA program is that, you know, it's there underneath the guise of national security. And even if we're going to go and accept that as is, um, when these abuses get uncovered and there's nobody that's being held accountable, it undermines the trust that Americans are supposed to have in the very institutions that allegedly 
are supposed to be working to keep them safe. And that's an untenable position to be in in the long run because that you don't want your institutions to not have trust in them from the overarching populace. So I think that, you know, this is why in the GSRA, there is a good portion that's focused on the accountability measure. I think that everybody across the political spectrum has recognized that it is unacceptable and ridiculous that the government for, as Pat kind of so colorfully illustrated over 15 years, has been able to go and just use this authority with little regard for what ultimately they have to, you know, face in terms of penalty because they haven't been held accountable. So I think that that's an important part of the conversation. And I think that that's why you're seeing, you know, Warren Davidson partner up with Zoe Lofgren and Sarah Jacobs. These are all very, very different kinds of lawmakers, but they all recognize the problem here. So I think that, again, this is why it's important. It's the only bill out there that's going to go and reauthorize Pfizer right now. And, you know, as uh, Ron Wyden said, because he was asked, uh, President Biden did not go and uh, read that bill. His person did not read that bill before commenting on it, which I think is funny. But, you know, it's it's something that, you know, you, you have to go and uh, have a conversation about. And it might be late in the game, but it's better to have something now. And I'm just skeptical of what happens if it expires. And so far as I don't think the government's just going to play ball and, and take it home, they'll just go and recategorize what they were doing before in other existing authorities and take it up in court. So I'd rather go and have something there than just, you know, deal with what falls out if it should go on lapse. Go ahead. And I, I think, you know, it, it's important to remember that we were told that the world would end if three specific Patriot Act authorities were allowed to expire in March of 2020. They expired. No damage. So that's why I keep saying they've made claims that this, this particular authority, the 702 authority, has successfully stopped attacks on America. So here, here's my deal with the ODNI. I'll come to your next meeting if you reinstate my TSSCI and let me personally review every last bit of data on those attacks. If I, as one of the most harsh living critics of, of the intelligence community, if I conclude that the data does in fact support reauthorization of this program, I will support it publicly. But you give me that TSSCI back, let me get in the room, let me read the data, let me decide for myself whether or not that's actually real and that you're not lying to us, then I'll be willing to reconsider my position, but not until then. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. James Chernowski is a senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. We spoke last week. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening. Thank you.